Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I, uh, I was pretty hard on you guys last week. Not really, I just told you the truth. And we're talking about discipleship, and specifically, uh, discipleship in the family. Um, And the reason I'm concentrating on this um, is, is simply because um, the family unit is really the foundation of our society. And that's not to diminish people who, you know, some people are called to, to be single and, and not have families, and that's fine. Um, but the reality is, even in a greater context, the Bible says that we are the family of God. And you remember in the Gospels when Jesus was, was teaching and he's inside of a house and they come to him and they say, hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus, the scripture says, Jesus looked around at those who were seated among him and he says, these are my mothers, my brothers. And so... What was he saying? Was he, was he diminishing or belittling his earthly mother Mary or his brothers? You know, Jesus really did have brothers. I know some traditions teach that he only had half-brothers, but that, that's not what the Scripture says. James, the brother of Jesus. Um, and so these were his brothers. This was his mother, but yet Jesus says, here are my mothers, here are my brothers. And so the point I think Jesus is making, the point we see in Scripture is that we are a family. The body of Christ is a family. So I, I want to qualify this as I speak today, um, that you know whether you are single, whether you have a family or you don't have a family, in terms of children or a husband or a wife, the Bible says we are a family, and the family unit is a picture of something. And we're going to talk about what that, what that typifies or what that pictures, uh, specifically as we go on in the, in the lesson today in Ephesians chapter 5. And so in this chapter, and we're going to, we're going to kind of look at the whole entire chapter, uh, but in this chapter, there are three times that Paul exhorts us to walk in a specific manner. Now we're talking about discipleship, and a disciple's walk is a disciple's life. And so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, let's, be, let's look at the first, first verse. Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love. So here is the first exhortation to walk in a specific way or in a specific manner. Paul says, walk in love. And then again in verse 8, he says, walk as children of light. Then again in verse 15, he says, walk circumspectly. So there's three times, these three occasions, that Paul specifically tells us how to walk. And these three exhortations are really talking about how we are to live our lives. That's what this word walk means. Walk in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. Live in a certain manner that's consistent with the Spirit's life that, that is in us if we are in Christ. And so as Paul talks about these things, I, I want us to notice something in these three commandments to walk in a certain way, Paul is bringing our walk into greater and greater focus. And so I want you to, have, you guys have all seen, um, I know there's, there's a couple of movies that come to mind, I don't, I don't know if it's uh, Men in Black, is Men in Black the one where they start with like a, you know, you know, or you've seen a picture of the earth, like from outer space, and you see the earth there in the, in the midst of space, and then the picture begins to zoom in and then pretty soon you see a country and then you see all the way down to a street in a specific location. That's kind of what I see Paul doing when he 
is in this chapter when he says walk in love, or he says walk as children of light, and he says walk circumspectly. It's kind of that picture. It's kind of this thing of, of Paul gives us a broad overview and focus, and then he, he brings it down to the specific detail that was always there, but we don't always see it or we don't always think about it. And so Paul is causing us to see and to think about specific things in the context of how we live our life. And so he's bringing increasing focus and magnification. This is what Paul is doing when he says, walk in love. That's the broad picture. And he says, walk as children of light. And he's contrasting certain things throughout this discourse here. And he's bringing us into a greater focus. And he's bringing more clarity to the picture that he's painting for us. And then he says, walk circumspectly. That word circumspectly means walk accurately. It's an interesting word. And so, walk accurately in what way? I mean, if you think of accuracy, you know, we went out a few months ago and the Kyles, who are on a trip to Minnesota, uh, they were gracious enough to take us out to their farm. And I, I have, um, I used to be a hunter, but I don't have opportunity to hunt anymore, but I have, uh, I have a number of, of uh, tools with which I can hunt with. And I hadn't used them in a long time, and so we took... Uh, those tools out to the farm, and we set up targets, and you know, at about 150 yards, uh, there needs to be a degree of accuracy if you're going to shoot that little water bottle that's 150 yards away, right? And you're not shooting with a shotgun, you're not going to hit that thing 150 yards away, so you got this little bitty bullet that's got to be pretty darn accurate to hit that water bottle at 150 yards away. I just want to let you guys know that I did hit it, okay? <laughs> now, I, I, I did miss sometimes too, but I did hit it. So, um, and so this is what Paul's doing. This, this word, walk circumspectly, walk accurately. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we, as we go through this chapter. But I want you to see that Paul is kind of bringing us in and he is showing us some specifics about our walk. So let's... Let's talk about these three ways or this focus that Paul is trying to bring us to. Let's look at verse 2 where Paul says, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Now, that's interesting that Paul makes that statement because Paul uses that statement again later on in the same chapter when he gives an exhortation or a commandment to husbands. And how they are to love their wives. So he says, walk in love, little children, dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So we're to walk in love as Christ also walked in love. And love means something more than just a feeling I have. Paul says, walk in love as Christ walked in love and gave himself. So love says something. Love demands something. Love demands that we give ourselves. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we live in a very selfish culture today. Everything has become very me-centered, self-centered. I mean, it's not... We're not here pointing fingers at the world. We expect the world to be like that, right? Because they're the world. But even in the church, we've become very self-centered, very me-focused. But yet, here is what the Scripture commands, that we're to love one another as Christ loved the church and gave Himself. When we come together as the body of Christ, we come together to give ourselves. Do you wake up on Sunday morning and think, man, I'm going to go to church today to give myself, to just give myself away? Or do you more readily think, or is it more natural for you to think, I'm going to go to church this morning and I wonder what I'm going to get from it? Do you think in terms of getting or giving? The Bible doesn't say walk in love as Christ loved us, and see what you can get from it. 
It says, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. And I submit to you, church, that fundamentally, our bent should be not what we're going to get, but what can we give? How can I give myself? How can I give myself to my brother, to my sister? This is love. This is, what we're, this is the way we're commanded to, to live. But then Paul says this in verse 3, But, fornication, you see this? That word but, is it's con- he's contrasting love and giving ourselves with fornication and uncleanliness. Let's read it. In all uncleanliness and covetousness. When you covet something, are you thinking about what you can give? Or are you thinking about what you can get? Man, I sure like that new car my neighbor's driving. Man, I wish I could get one of those. I mean, you could put anything in there, right? Jesus said it it could be a car. It could be your neighbor's wife. That's what the scripture uses. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Why? Because it's your neighbor's wife. It's not your wife. Don't look to get what's not yours. So he says, fornication, uncleanliness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, as is fitting for believers. We all understand saints are not people who have excelled in the faith and have reached a certain level, and then somebody puts a stamp on them and says, oh, now you're a saint. The Bible uses saints in a general term to speak of the believers. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are a believer. You are one who walks in the faith. And as a believer, as a saint, there is an expectation that comes with that. And the expectation is that you will walk in love as Christ also loved us. And you will give yourself as Christ also gave himself. And you won't be looking at what you can get or take from your neighbor. You're not coveting. You're not an adulterer or a fornicator. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. If I'm looking at what somebody else has, wishing that I had that very same thing, coveting whether it be his house, his car, his wife, or whatever, his money, his bank account, if I'm coveting that, am I thankful for what I have? We're not. So covetousness and thankfulness cannot coexist together. They're mutually exclusive concepts. So I can't be coveting and be thankful at the same time. So the scripture says, be thankful. Don't be covetousness. Or don't be in in covetousness. Don't be a coveter. Don't covet. Be thankful. Be thankful. And so I can't be thankful. So is, is thankfulness consistent with love? It is. I mean, Paul is linking love with thankfulness. Do you, do, you, do you relate love and thankfulness together? The Bible does. Very profusely, very purposefully, the Bible links love and thankfulness together and says if we walk in love, we will fundamentally be thankful. We will not fundamentally be coveting other people's stuff or things that I don't have because those things are not consistent with love. Walk in love, dear children. Let no one deceive you, verse 6, with empty words or because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, I want you to to mark that phrase in your Bible. Paul uses this term, sons of of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. With who? With these sons of disobedience. With these people who are coveting and who are not thankful, 
who are not walking in love, who are not giving themselves, but seeing and seeking to get whatever they can get whenever they can get it. Paul says, don't be partakers with them. Don't live that way. And he's fixing to tell us why we should not live that way. So he distinguishes those who live that way. Do you see it there? In verse 8, he calls them sons of disobedience. So the first, the first exhortation Paul gives us in the way that we are to walk is to walk in love. Sons of disobedience, do they walk in love? Sons of disobedience do not walk in love. Why? Who is love? God is love. So if I'm in Christ, if I'm in God and God's in me, am I a son of disobedience? I better not be. I'm, I'm, I'm in reality, I cannot be. I cannot be a son of disobedience and be a son of God at the same time. That, that's, that can't be. Now, I can be disobedient as a child of God, right? But there's a difference between me acting disobedient and me being a son of disobedience. A son of disobedience means who, who is my father? Not God, right? Disobedience is my father. And who's the father of all disobedience and lawlessness? Satan is. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, you sons of the devil. So if I am a child of God, church, if you are a child of God, how should you walk? As a child of God or as a son of disobedience? You should walk as a child of God. And a child of God walks how? In love. He walks in love. Now, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 8, for you were once darkness. Or we can say it like this, you were once sons of disobedience, but you're not anymore. You were once, verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are what? You are light. So you were darkness, but now you are light. You were sons of disobedience, but now you are by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, sons of God. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Here comes our second commandment in how to walk. Walk as children of light. So here is our broad overview. Walk in love. We see in John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. Does that mean that Jesus did away with and erased all the other commandments? Absolutely not. He did not. He fulfilled them all. They are still in force. He didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled the law. And He still fulfills the law. And the law must continue to be fulfilled. Who fulfills it? Christ fulfills it. How do we fulfill it? We fulfill it in Christ, right? Because He's the only one that can do it. And this thing is like driving me crazy. I don't know why that thing keeps coming off my ear, but it does. I'm sorry. So, here he's bringing the focus down. Walk in love. This is the broad overview. Here's the broad overview he gives us in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. And... And in that broad overview, there are a whole lot of specifics. Like if I love you the way Christ loves you, then I'm not going to steal from you, am I? If I love you the way Christ has loved us, then I'm not going to lie to you, am I? If I love you the way Christ has demonstrated His love for us, then I'm not going to harm you, am I? Because stealing and lying and harming, those things are, they are inconsistent with who God is. They are inconsistent with God who is love. So he, he says, walk as children of light. Then he says in verse 9, in parentheses here, he's making a point. For the fruit of the Spirit 
is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, why do you think he put that there? For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Do you you know Galatians? Hold your finger there. Let's turn over to Galatians. Turn back just a couple of pages to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Okay. Now, Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians long before he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to the Galatians was one of the first letters that he wrote. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he lists them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries. He lists a whole bunch of things. Do you see the similarity between those works of the flesh in Galatians 5.19 and what Paul is writing here to the Ephesians some 15 or so years later? When he says, walk in love, not in fornication, not in uncleanliness, not in covetousness, not in in filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, not in idolatry. He relates all of those things to idolatry. Who is the idol we set up when we walk in that way? It's ourself, isn't it? Because love is utterly selfless. So when we're not walking in love, we're walking not in selflessness, we're walking, if we're not walking in love, we're walking in selfishness. So the attitude that says, I want to see what I can get, is not a selfless attitude, it's a selfish attitude. And I am the idol that's been set up because it's all about what me, what I can get, right? And Paul says, now that's not the way of love. And so he says, that's, that's not, no, not only is it not the way of love, he says, that's not the way of light. You once were children of disobedience, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit, he's contrasting the works of the flesh, which are consistent with darkness and disobedience, and, and, and all that is opposed to love, with the fruit of the Spirit. Which is consistent with what? Which is consistent with the life of the Spirit that now lives in us. If I was darkness, but now I'm light, where, am, where are we light, church? It tells us in verse 8 right there. Walk as children of light. You are light where? In the Lord. And so in the Lord, if I'm in the Lord, what do I possess? What is mine? What has, what has God poured into me? His Spirit. And if His Spirit is in me, then what should be manifest through my life? The fruit of the Spirit. So He says, that's exactly why He says here, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. It is directly opposed, diametrically opposed to the works of the flesh that are consistent with darkness and and disobedience. You are not sons of disobedience. You are children of God. Walk in love. As Christ has loved you. You are not darkness. You once were, but now you are light in the Lord. And you are no longer held captive to the works of the flesh, but you have been released now to manifest the life and the fruit of the Spirit, which is consistent with what? Which is consistent with goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful Works of darkness. John 15, what does the Father want the branches to be? Fruitful or unfruitful? Ah, He wants them to be fruitful. He wants us to be fruitful branches. So He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. You know what a lot of people's problem is? They think they can still fellowship with darkness and not get dirty. Or we could say it like this. They think they can roll around in the pig pen and not get any mud on them. And the reality is that's not true. 
There is a way for us to be a witness to the world, and there's a way for us to get into trouble. The Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. There's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. A lot of people are going about things the wrong way, and they're wondering why they're they're still having problems. Someone help me. Yeah, tape doesn't work. Try that. This is what we're supposed to use, but it fell off. Now, maybe that's why I'm having a problem. So there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And so bad company corrupts good morals. And so Paul says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we're supposed to go around and tattle on everybody? No. What that means is if you are light, did the light have to try to expel the darkness? When, when we flip the lights on in this room, if we turned every light off in this room right now, it would be pitch black in here. And the moment we flip the lights back on, You know what's expelled? Quicker than you can blink your eye, the darkness is expelled. How was the darkness expelled? It was expelled by the light. Or we can say it like this, it was exposed by the light. If you are light as you live, as you walk in this world, you will expose the unfruitful works of darkness. You won't have to try. You won't have to be creeping around and snooping around trying to find out what everybody's doing. I'm telling you what, your very presence will be convicting to them. Why? Because when light comes into the presence of darkness, it expels it. It exposes it. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't don't have fellowship with those things. Rather, expose them. Don't become like the darkness be light which expels and exposes the darkness. Don't compromise. Stand in the truth. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep and from, arise from the dead. And Christ will give you light. So then... He's putting emphasis here. So then, see that you walk. How? Circumspectly. Accurately. He's bringing the focus now down to a level where he is beginning to reveal details to us. We're not just getting a big picture. I mean, he's bringing it down and now he's fixing to give us details about what this walk of love Walking as children of light, walking circumspectly is all about. And he's, he's in a roundabout way saying, in case you don't understand what I'm saying, I'm going to make it crystal clear for you. I'm going to put it under an electron microscope so that you won't miss what I'm saying here. See then that you walk circumspectly, accurately, not as fools, not carelessly, but as wise Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what is the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is that we walk in love. The will of the Lord is that we walk as children of light. The will of the Lord is that we walk accurately. That we conduct ourselves accurately in relation to the Word of God and in relation to who Christ is. So how do we love? We love as Christ has loved us. What was Christ giving, or was he selfish? He gave himself. He gave his very life. He was the most unselfish. Well, so pastor, are you saying that I shouldn't be selfish? Well, no, I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. That if we walk in love... If we walk consistent with love, then we will consistently not live selfish lives. If I'm commanded to walk as a child of light and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, 
Well, pastor, are you saying I can't go out and hang out at the bar and have a few beers and, you know, just have a good time? I don't know. You tell me that. Does that mean I can't watch and partake of, you know, the things that... I don't know. You tell me that. Are those things fruitful for your life? Are they consistent with the walk of love? Are they consistent with the works of darkness? Are they consistent with light? See, the Spirit of God in you will let you know that. You won't have to ask me. You will know because the Spirit will bear witness. Because the Word will let you know. It will. So he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? We turn that into something that is an unattainable experience for many people. When in reality, it's not an unattainable or some experience that's way up here that I've got to attain to. It is a lifestyle that I'm called to live every day. Well, what, what is this lifestyle? What is the lifestyle of being filled with the Spirit? It's walking in love. It's not being selfish, but rather giving of myself. It's walking as a child of light. In other words, I'm not out there participating with the unfruitful works of darkness. I'm not out there lusting after someone else's wife. I'm not out there trying to figure out how I can steal someone's stuff or get someone's stuff or become like this person. No. The only person we we should be concerned about being like is Christ. Walk circumspect, walk accurately. Conduct yourself accurately according to who Christ is, according to the Word of God. Don't be unwise. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking, being filled with the Spirit determines how I speak. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What is our speech seasoned with? Is it seasoned with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Or is it seasoned with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and impatience? I'll be honest, sometimes my speech is seasoned that way. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I get impatient. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say to the people I love most. Usually my wife. My wife usually catches the brunt of all that. And and more times than not, it's not frustration with her. It's frustration with other people that ends up being taken out on her because she happens to be the one closest to me. And I have to catch myself and say, you know, that's, that's wrong. Or my kids, you know. We were driving down the car and we were driving down to Victoria. And I don't remember what happened. Oh, a rock hit my windshield. And EJ was cringing, waiting for me to yell. And she was so proud of me because I didn't say anything, crack my windshield. And I'm like, you really thought I was going to yell? She goes, yeah, I thought, I thought you were going to yell. The baby was asleep. I thought you were going to yell and wake the baby up. But I didn't. Aren't y'all proud of me? (laughs) I don't think I have anger issues, but sometimes I do get frustrated. And I am very loud. And I do get passionate about things. But, But being filled with the Spirit should dictate how we speak. It should it should determine our speech. And at least when we fall into error. Or we let our emotions or our flesh get the best of us. That spirit in us should remind us, hey, that's wrong. You need to apologize to that person. You need to repent of that attitude. I mean, are we humble enough to be able to do that? 
We should be. Singing and making melody, these are action verbs. Speaking, singing, and making melody in your heart. What, what should be my song? This, my song should be seasoned with the same thing that my speech is seasoned with. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody in my heart. There should be, this, the spirit-filled life should, should do something to my heart attitude. It should affect the attitude of my heart. Giving thanks. Now remember, you can't covet and be thankful at the same time. So if I am giving thanks, what am I not doing? I'm not coveting. I'm giving thanks. I'm thankful. Giving thanks sometimes. No. It says giving thanks, verse 20, always for the things that benefit me. No. It says, giving thanks always for all things. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I have a hard time with that one. I'm not especially thankful that I have a crack in my windshield. But the crack in my windshield does remind me that I have a windshield. And the fact that I have a windshield does remind me that I have a car. And the fact that I was driving it down the road at 75 miles an hour means that it's a working automobile. (laughs) So I, I really have a lot to be thankful for, right? That one little crack in my windshield has just given me so many things I could be thankful for. But I didn't think of it automatically that way when that little crack appeared there. I, I, I thought about what that rock took away from me, not what it reminded me that I have. But really, we should live our lives in that way, church, that, that, that even the things that happen to us that don't immediately seem good, can they remind us of the things that we have to be thankful for, that we're we might not readily think of in that moment, but, but it gives us a moment, a moment to pause and to think. Be thankful always, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting. This is another, this is another aspect of the Spirit-filled life. Submitting. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Now, husbands are going, well, I know my wife's supposed to do that because the Bible says so. But the Bible says we're all to be submitted to one another. Why is that? Because we are all part of the body of Christ. And who are we all submitted to as the body? We are all submitted to the head, who is Christ. Amen? Amen. Now remember, Paul is, is showing us something. He's bringing us down to some detail in our life. And we're talking about discipleship. So what does this have to do with discipleship? Well, disciples walk in love. Disciples walk as children of light. Disciples walk circumspectly, they conduct themselves accurately according to the one they are learning from and following, namely Christ. Disciples are filled with the Spirit. That means they live in submission to and under the control of the Spirit that has filled them, that now possesses them. You realize the Spirit is not something you possess, but the Spirit is something that possesses you. See, that's another part, another problem we have. As Christians, we think the Spirit is something God gave us to possess. Like a gun we walk around with and decide who we're going to shoot with it. No, the Spirit is not what we possess. The Spirit is who possesses us. We don't control the Spirit. The Spirit is to control us. And that's what a Spirit-filled life means. The Spirit should control us, our speech, our song, our giving of thanks, our submission. And then he says this in verse 22. And he gets down to the specifics of our walk here. He says, wives, why is he doing this? He's doing this for a very specific purpose, and he's fixing to show us what these relationships mean and what they are picturing and typifying for us. But he says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband 
is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. So the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. Just as, verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Did you guys watch the debate Thursday night? The Republican debate before the Iowa straw poll? Well, in that debate, Michelle Bachman was asked this question. She evidently made a comment sometime about her husband wanted her to be a tax attorney and she didn't want to and the Lord told her, submit to your husband. And so they asked her, excuse me one moment. That you are going to be submissive to your husband, does that mean, basically, is your husband going to be president or are you going to be president? Now, I don't want to get into a political debate here, but I thought it was kind of interesting that the whole question came up. And the, the point of the matter is, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's not a valid question, but, but you see how much fear exists in the nation, why? Because they, they don't understand biblical truths and biblical principles. And so, instead of that becoming something that should speak well of someone, it becomes something that causes or gives rise to fear. And in the wrong hands with the wrong people, Maybe, maybe it should give us reason to be fearful. I don't know. But the Bible says, and the Bible is very clear, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But it qualifies this. It compares the wife to the church, and it compares the husband to who? To Christ. Now let's go back to, to verse 2 in this chapter. What does it say about Christ? We're to walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us. It tells us something about Christ, doesn't it? It tells us about his willingness to give, his selflessness in giving himself for us. Husbands, are you willing to give yourself selflessly to your wife? To love her the way Christ loved the church? Are you willing to do that? And if you are, And if you will, wives, do you have a reason to not submit to that husband who is loving you the way Christ loves the church and giving himself as Christ gave himself for us? We shouldn't have a problem with that, should we? I know I'm driving you guys crazy. And I am really apologize for having to do this. So wives, would you have a problem submitting to that? You wouldn't, would you? Husbands, Paul goes on and he says, Love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What is, what is Christ doing with the? What is He doing by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church? What does this scripture say that that Christ is doing? What He is? What's He doing? He's perfecting her. He's glorifying her. He's bringing her to a place where He will 
present her to himself without spot or wrinkle. And so we see the work that Christ is doing in the church. Is it for the good of the church? It's for God's glory. It's for His glory, right? But, but in Christ being glorified through the church, is there something good and wonderful happening to the church? Yes. And so Paul compares this to a marriage. Wives, if you had a husband who was nurturing you and taking care of you and setting you apart and, and, and just making over you so that you could be presented as that glorious bride. Kind of make you feel special, wouldn't it? Boy, I'm glad my wife's not in here today. Man, don't y'all, don't y'all let her hear this message, okay? No, that's... No, I'm just teasing. But really, it's challenging. It's challenging to me. It should be challenging to every husband in here. Now, you wives aren't off the hook here. But the reality is, and this is why I say, husbands, we have an awesome responsibility. Men, we have an awesome responsibility to facilitate discipleship in our homes with our wives and our children. And that discipleship in the home directly affects the discipleship in the church. And if we remain fearful to talk about these things because we're going to offend someone or ostracize someone, then the church will remain in a state of poor discipleship. And we'll look too similar to the culture around us. And we want to point fingers at the world, but really the world has a great excuse. They are darkness. They are sons of disobedience. Why are we putting a demand on the sons of disobedience that the sons of light and the sons of God will not even fulfill? It doesn't make sense. And I am convinced that the world has become really good at pointing to the world and judging and condemning the world because she refuses to judge herself. And if we're going to judge anybody, the Scripture says don't judge the world. It says judge the house of God. Paul says don't judge the people out in the world, the sinners in the world. That's God's business. He says you should be judging yourselves. You judge the church. You judge those inside the church. Not to condemn them but to facilitate discipleship. Brother, let me walk with you. Let me take you by the hand and let's walk together through this problem that you're having. Husband, let us men come alongside of you and encourage you in how to love your wife and father your children. The problem is, there is so much pride that exists in the heart of men, they, they can't receive it, they won't receive it. Not all men, but a lot of men. The same way with women. Women, there's a way for you to love your husband. There's a way for you to witness to your husband, and there's a way for you not to. In the way that you are not to, it's a three-letter word that, ends, that begins with an N and ends with a G. You guys know what it is? It's another name for a horse. Okay? It's called a nag. Is that right? An old nag. That old nag. Don't nag your husbands. That's not how you're going to witness to them. That's not how you're going to win them over. And so the Scripture says, let your quiet witness speak to them. Let your humble submission to the Lord Convict them. And then the Spirit of God will do the work that you can't do. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Well, the wife says, well, what if I have a husband who's an unbelieving husband? Let your quiet witness be that which the Holy Spirit uses. Well, what if I have a believing husband and he is just stubborn and willful and downright mean? Well, I'll tell you what happens then. That's when the men of the church need to go to that brother and say, Hey, brother, you know what? 
You're making life miserable for your wife. How can we pray with you? Not to judge him. Do you know how foreign those concepts are in the church today? They are absolutely, totally foreign. And you know why they're foreign? Because as pastors, if we did that, you know what, you know what probably at least one out of every two of those men would do? They'd go find another church to attend. And so we're more fearful of men than we are of God. And, and so we justify compromise by saying, well, at least if they're here and they hear my sermon week in and week out, maybe the Spirit of God will work on them. Well, that's just nothing but pride and arrogance on the part of a pastor. My sermon is going to do that? Ah, the Holy Spirit might use my sermon, but I'm going to tell you what. We need to be willing to disciple. This is discipleship. And we all say we want to be disciples, but the problem is we don't want to be discipled. And we can never be disciples unless we are first discipled. And we can't be discipled in the easy things. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? It's like Jesus saying, hey, anybody can be friendly to those that are friendly to you, but can you love your enemies and bless those that curse you? Well, everybody can receive from me when, when you're receiving what, what, whatever it is that's not stepping on your toes. But when I get in your business, when the Holy Ghost gets in your business, and then you're called to accountability, men, are you courageous enough, are you a big enough man to stand there and take it and say, okay, guys, help me. I need your help. Or are we too proud and we say, I don't, I don't need any help. I don't need any man to tell me what to do. I only need Jesus. I know somebody like that. I don't need any man to tell me what to do. I only need Jesus. Well, funny, Jesus chose men. He chose humanity to preach the gospel. He calls us to be overseers, to call into account, to bring into account, to bring discipline. He tells us to do that. Do you know how unpopular and how politically incorrect this message is? It, it is. I'm telling you what. The people who write all the church growth books right now are saying, Pastor, you are killing your congregation. You are, you are guaranteeing that your church will not grow if you keep preaching like this. But you know what, you know what I began to wonder a few years ago? What good does it do to have megachurches full of people who don't know the truth? Who are willing to compromise, who are willing to say this is okay and that's okay? And I feel good because I went to church, but I'm going to go out and live like hell six days of the week and destroy my family and destroy everything else. But yet I've got the bumper sticker on my car, Jesus is my co-pilot. And I've got the little lapel pin. And What good is that? I'll tell you what good that does. That does nothing but serve this right here. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel good. And when, when I'm living to make this feel good, we've, we've missed the first commandment right here. Walk as children of love. So husbands ought to love their wives, verse 28, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I mean, this is not shrouded in mystery here. This is so crystal clear. Husbands, you need to read this. Wives, you need to read this. Verse 30. And here Paul pauses and he tells us why this is important. And this is so important, church. For we are members of His body. Paul takes it out of the realm of self and he takes it right back to Christ. And he says, this is not about you. This is not about me. This is not self-serving. This is about Christ. Because we are members of His body. Before I'm a husband, before you're a wife, before you're a father, before you're a mother, before you're a lover, you are a member of His body, he says. Don't forget this truth. We are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Do you see the connectedness there? Do you see the intimacy there? We are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, verse 31, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become 
one. One flesh. One flesh. Then he makes one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. How is it that a man and a woman become bone of bone and flesh of flesh? It's a mystery. And if nothing else, it tells us that marriage is more than a social, a civil, and a legal institution. Marriage is first and foremost something that God created and it is spiritual, it is mysterious, it is powerful. Nevertheless, now we go, before I end this, you go back to Genesis. Turn there real quick with me. Genesis chapter 2. Then we'll come back. We'll end. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. This goes to the very heart, the very purpose of, of God in creation. Why did God ordain marriage? Because God ordained the church. Why did God ordain husband and wife become one flesh? Because God had ordained before the foundations of the earth in the eternal counsels of the triune Godhead that we would be in Christ Jesus, bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. Marriage was instituted not as a good idea, not not so that the earth could uh, just be populated, Now, marriage was instituted first and foremost because it sends us, it gives us the clearest picture of our relationship with Christ. I speak a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 23, And Adam said, after he woke up, God put him to sleep, and he took out of his side a rib, and he fashioned from that rib. Notice God didn't fashion her from the dirt. God fashioned her from the side of Adam. More specifically, He fashioned Eve, He fashioned woman from the very life of Adam. And so Adam says very accurately, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one Flesh. Paul says, I'm talking to you guys about something very mysterious. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And just as Adam was a type of Christ, Eve was a type of the church. The church is born, is created anew, born again from the very life of Christ. Out of the side of Adam, God formed a rib into a woman. He opened that side up and he took life out of Adam and he created woman. And it spoke of the church. Jesus hung on the cross and it was that side that was opened up and blood and water flowed out. Which just is symbolic of what was getting ready to be birthed through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. The church. This speaks of us. Why is marriage important? Because it speaks of us. It speaks of Christ and His church. Why is our witness to the world so important? Because we speak of Christ and the church. Why is my relationship with my wife so important? Because it speaks of Christ And the church. Wife, why is your relationship with your husband so important? Because it speaks of Christ and the church. This isn't just, uh, uh, this isn't something that was just developed so you can have guiltless sex with one another. But that's what the world wants to believe that it is today. Oh, if we get married, we can have sex as many times as we want to, and I don't have to feel guilty about it. I mean, that's what marriage has been reduced to a lot of people. And unfortunately, I don't have a problem with the world believing that about marriage. Because once again, they're darkness. I do have a problem with the church believing that about marriage. 
That's not what marriage is about. You should have guiltless sex. Sex is good. God created it, okay? There's nothing wrong with sex. But can you see that your marriage is so much greater than just how it serves me? But in understanding that, can you also see that you should find your greatest joy and fulfillment physically, emotionally, and spiritually within the context of that marriage relationship, and you should take great joy and great pleasure in that. God didn't create marriage for it to be a burden. He created it to be a joy. Our relationship with Christ shouldn't be a burden. It should be a joy. Knowing that I have become bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh should not be a burden to me. It should be a joy to me. I should find my greatest happiness and my greatest fulfillment in that reality. But yet, because we don't understand what these things mean, it's not that. It's a burden. It's legalism. It's what I have to do. I don't get anything out of it, so blah, 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 blah. Well, maybe you should come with an attitude of what you're going to give to it. I mean, how many marriages make it when both people, all they care about is what they're going to get out of it? How, what, what do you think the chance of success of that marriage is? Well, why do we wonder we don't get anything out of fellowshipping with the believers when all we do is come wondering what we're going to get out of it? That's like saying, I wonder why my marriage failed, because all I ever did was wondering what my wife was going to give to me. All I ever did was live wondering what I was going to get out of it, and I don't understand why I didn't make it. Huh, really? <laughs> that doesn't make sense to you, does it? Well, why do we do the church that way? Why do we look at the church that way? Why do you look at your marriage that way? Don't do it. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. And she won't have a problem submitting to you. And you'll both find the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment that you could possibly find. Does it happen automatically? It doesn't happen automatically. Are there ebbs and flows? Yes, there are ebbs and flows. But listen, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. We're in this for the long haul. Marriage is an earthly institution. There will not be marriage and giving and marriage in heaven. So your marriage, you got your life on earth to make your marriage speak of something that glorifies God or it's going to speak of something that the world is going to look at and say, man, I don't want that. Some of you are victims but don't live with the victim mentality. Because you might be the victim of a bad marriage, don't live with a victim mentality because you're not a victim. You might have been victimized, but you're not a victim. This is why the Scripture says that God will be the husband to the husbandless and the father to the fatherless. Married or not, we are in Christ. We are the bride of Christ. What is our marriage relationship speaking to the world? What is it? This has everything to do with discipleship. It's personal. It begins right here. We can't separate them. We can't. The Bible doesn't, so we must not. Let's all stand. The last verse of chapter 5. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, don't give your wives a reason to disrespect you. Father, as we look at these truths in your word, Lord, these are difficult things, these are unpopular things, these are things that challenge us to the very core. Lord, whether we're in the pulpit or whether we're in the chair, they challenge us to our very core. And they call us all into account.
as to what kind of disciples we will be. Are we going to be disciples in word only, in name only? Are we going to live with a big facade while in reality our life is a lie? Or can we humble ourselves, swallow our pride, and, and say, Lord, from a heart of humility, pray for me, help me, hold me to account that I would be the husband, the wife, the father, the mother, the son, the daughter that would bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. For we are all bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. We are the body and He is the head. Teach us, Lord, how to walk in love, how to walk as children of light, how to walk circumspectly, filled with the Spirit, bringing honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.